All right, welcome sports fans, or shall I say empathetic sports fans. This is episode 57 of the Sports Psych MDs podcast. I'm one of your two hosts. I'm Dr. Tori Trojo. Today with me is Dr. Armin Hose. We are the two Sports Psych MDs. Unfortunately, we don't have our point guard with us today, Benjamin Vogel, but don't worry, he'll be back next week. Today, it's a special one because we have a former colleague of ours joining us on the show today. This is Dr. Mike Burke, the legend himself. He's our expert in the field in psychedelic medicine out here in Los Angeles. And we had to bring him on today because today's topic, you guessed it, it's all about psychedelics. So today we're focusing primarily on three substances, psilocybin or magic mushrooms, ketamine, and MDMA. So these may sound familiar to you. You may have, in fact have done these before at a campfire or a rave. But that's not what we're talking about today. We're specifically talking about using these therapeutic agents under the supervision of licensed clinical mental health professionals in controlled settings and with controlled doses. Um, so you exactly know what you're getting. And the cause, the goal at the end of the day is a therapeutic goal. So trying to cure an ailment when it comes to like something like depression or alcoholism or post-traumatic stress disorder. So once again, we're not talking about these substances in the setting of recreational use. We're not advising using these substances recreationally. This is specifically geared towards discussing these medications being used in a clinical environment under the supervision of a licensed mental health professional. Um, and that's what's going on throughout the country right now. There's several clinical trials going on. We'll get into all the details. They're being used in former and current athletes to help with serious ailments, and they're having, showing great success. But I don't want to spoil the interview, so let's go ahead. I want to introduce Mike Burke a little bit better here. Dr. Burke, he trained with us, like I said. He went on to do an addiction fellowship at UCLA. He's currently working at the California Center of Psychedelic Therapy in Los Angeles, offering ketamine-assisted therapy. And he's also a therapist and site physician in one of these phase three clinical trials like I talked about. Um, and this one specifically is of MDMA-assisted therapy for post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, sponsored by the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, or MAPS. MAPS continues to grow this movement. Um, he also works part-time as an outreach psychiatrist, so he's helping the individuals that are most in need, and he's enrolled in an integrative psychiatry fellowship. Please welcome Dr. Mike Burke to the the Sports Psych MD's podcast. Let's go. We're excited to have you. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. Former colleague of ours. We trained together. Um, but tell us a little bit about uh, what you've been up to recently here, Dr. Burke. Yeah, so so finished residency in 2018 and then did an addiction fellowship. So during that spring of 2019, or actually during the winter, I had a you know meeting with a friend of mine who's the principal investigator for the, the phase three study of MDMA assisted therapy for PTSD here in LA. He told me about a training opportunity to you know get started to to learn to do the MDMA assisted therapy. And so I applied, you know, got accepted, was able to start the training. And so since that time, you know, I've joined them in, you know, at their clinic doing ketamine-assisted therapy for depression and PTSD primarily, and working on a clinical trial, the phase three study of MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD. And it's in the second of two phase three studies right now. 
and I'm working as the site physician and as a therapist on the study. Awesome. So I'm, I'm curious because we trained together. I think Armin, um, we, we, we hear about this when we were in training. I think obviously there's a long history of using psychedelics to help treat individuals with mental health uh, concerns. I think back in the 1960s, they used them quite a bit before they became illegal. But Mike, what, what inspired you to kind of I go um, away from, I guess, the traditional path? Because you're, you're still a practicing psychiatrist, obviously, still prescribing antidepressants and antipsychotics and stuff. But what inspired you to kind of want to also explore this other, I think, frontier of, of an also foundational part of uh, therapeutics? Yeah, I think a big part of it was, you know, getting, you know, experience during residency and working with, you know, so many patients with treatment resistant conditions, you know, at the VA, we saw a lot of people who had PTSD for, you know, a, a long time and, you know, had tried so many different medications and tried all the therapies, you know, still didn't really get the benefit that they were hoping. And, you know, I knew about some of these studies and it was kind of off my radar, it just kind of seemed like something, you know, happening far away. But, you know, then through Cole Marta, who, you know, graduated a few years ahead of us, you know, kind of told me about some things happening locally and got involved. So, yeah, really, I think it was just kind of, you know, working with working with people in residency and you know, just seeing how many people could benefit from something new. Yeah. That veteran population, man, it's, it's, it, it was extremely challenging working with them, but also rewarding. But you're right, this, some of the, the individuals there struggling with like immense trauma from like uh, the Vietnam War and so on and so forth. It's just, it's difficult for kind of the, the treatments we have currently, I think, at our disposable. They're great. The medications we have work wonders oftentimes, but sometimes they're just not enough. And even in combination with all these different types of therapies, because at the VA, we had psychologists who were doing cognitive behavioral therapy, acceptance commitment therapy. It's like we were doing, we ourselves are doing psychodynamic therapies, um, the whole range of medications. And for some individuals, that's just, just doesn't work. So, so absolutely. Well, today's topic is on psychedelics in psychiatry and uh, psychedelics, um, of course, refers to stuff like LSD, ketamine, MDMA, you know, those kind of things that we often associate with hallucinogens, right? Um, and really, what, what, one of the most, I would say, fascinating advances that we've had within mental health, I think, is little known to the public, is, is the therapeutic benefit that the medical community has discovered as it relates to these hallucinogens, these things that, you know, like back in the 1960s and 70s were associated with party drug, you know, culture and, and just kind of like, you know, like tripping, right? Like, yeah, oh, yeah. Even, in, even in my childhood, I, I had plenty of friends who'd sit by around a campfire and, and, share some magic mushrooms and, and have a good old time. So yeah. there is that, I think, still that kind of stigma against these these substances um, that they're kind of recreational or party drugs. But uh, that's that's one of the reasons why we wanted to bring on uh, Dr. Mike Burke, our local expert here. Expert, um, yeah, in psychedelics. That's pretty cool, right? <laughs> it's like, yeah, no, he's a psychiatrist or certified. In fact, he's our senior. Um, you know, he was our, our chief resident. Uh, back in our training days, someone we, we looked up to. And, and when he decided to go into the field, 
um, you know, we were thinking that, you know, he'd go off and be some you know, hot, big shot attending in, you know, UCLA or something like that. And instead, he surprised us all and uh, took a different pathway, but, but one that um, we thought was super amazing and, and extraordinary for a psychiatrist because it's sort of like, um, like uncharted territory, you know, in a sense, as far as clinical practice, right? The ability to work with therapeutics that traditionally were like considered street drugs, like a party drugs, but in ways that, that can really uh, transform people's lives and transform mental illness, and that are paired with therapy interventions at the bedside, right? With, with, a, um, with a psychiatrist, with a trained professional. On the couch. On the couch, <laughs> on the couch, yeah. Let's, let, maybe we'll clean that up a little bit because at the bedside, <laughs> that could get interesting. Um, but yeah, no, um, it's Freud. It's like Freud's um, wildest dream, right? Um, coming to, to real life, to fruition here before our very eyes in 2021. So uh, we are so excited to have Dr. Mike Burke, um, LA's own Dr. Mike Burke here, who's an expert in this, in a, he's an addiction psychiatrist, um, but an expert in this particular uh, topic. Got to mention that you did an extra fellowship in addiction psychiatry at UCLA. And I think as these psychedelics become more mainstream, as FDA approvals come, which inevitably they will, who knows, this guy could be ahead at UCLA someday. So don't count that out just yet. So I guess, however you feel fit, introduce us to this, this world um, that you're currently in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, you know, lately, there's been a pretty big resurgence in psychedelic clinical trials. And the ones that are furthest along right now are MDMA and psilocybin. So, so ketamine's in its own category. And actually each of these three are kind of in their own, own category. So you know, classic psychedelics, you kind of you know, puts LSD, psilocybin, mescaline into that mix. And then ketamine it, you know, is a dissociative anesthetic but you know has has psychedelic like effects and you know can have very different phenomenological effects based kind of on dosing and route of administration and then MDMA is uh, so some people you know consider it a, a psychedelic but you know different than classic psychedelics but the the sponsoring study puts it in a class called intactogens intactogen okay i love it which love it. it's powerful it's like a group of um, medicines that kind of cause an increase in emotional openness, your feelings of interconnectedness with other people, changes in perception, people, you know, kind of coming away with their well-being. Mm-hmm. And so MDMA is in the final phase of, of clinical trials. So phase three is divided up into two studies. The first one has been completed and it, it was statistically significant. They're going to be releasing more information that study coming in the future and now the second one has opened up okay and what are they looking at what are they treating with the mdma the ptsd okay. yeah, post-traumatic stress disorder wow so phase three so for for our audience who doesn't know what phase three trial means can you just explain a little bit more about what where phase phase three what that means yeah so you know bringing a drug to market there's you know like the preclinical like you know animal data um, and then phase one is basically, you know, is giving it to human subjects, but, you know, assessing primarily for, for safety. 
Then phase two are the first studies where they're looking for efficacy. Right. And then, you know, if that looks good enough, then FDA will approve, you know, phase three studies if there's, you know, enough resources from the institution going for it. So phase three means it's close, right? I mean, that's, that means we, we think this could work. Yeah, and then the data shows that. So, you know, pool, pooled phase two data, you know, shows large, a large effect size for, for this therapy, uh, you know, Cohen's D of 0.8. That's huge. So let's give our view, uh, listeners a little idea. So 0.8 in psychiatry. So the best I think we have is stimulants. Is it kind of around 0.8 or 0.9? Stimulants yeah. as in Adderall, Ritalin. So, and, and I think antidepressants, just that's probably what people are most familiar with. What's that effect size? I think for PTSD, it's like about 0.4. Mm. Okay. So, and the closer you are to one, the better. And these are often in, you know, we're studies where patients are, you know, kind of like handpicked. So this is twice as effective, essentially. And it was with the population of you know, treatment-resistant PTSD, who where the average duration was was like eighteen or nineteen years. So people who have failed antidepressants. So we got to we dude, that's amazing, man. I mean, you got to put that in perspective for our audience. Basically, this trial using human subjects has advanced into a stage where. Uh, the FDA is on the verge of approving this drug to go to market in which patients that have PTSD, that have been diagnosed with PTSD, are getting better at rates that are twice as good as what commercial antidepressants are doing for folks. Is that, is that accurate? Well, so, so let me add some other statistics to that. So, um, so the pool data looked at, you know, there were studies that did three MDMA sessions in addition to all the psychotherapy. And I'll get into like the structure of the, you know, treatment in a little bit to kind of give some context there versus, you know, so two or, or three. And, you know, at, at the end of the primary outcome point, 56% of the people no longer met criteria for PTSD. So over, over half went into full remission. And then a 12-month follow-up, wow. that number increased to 67%. And it was statistically better than the primary endpoint. So people actually, don't, not only did they you know, stay the yeah. same, but they actually improved over, over the year following the studies. Right. So, yeah, and the primary endpoint, I mean, that's kind of the main objective of the study. is sort of like your goal. So they exceeded their goal. And they exceeded their goal in a way that was uh, – was, was pretty cool because it, it sounds like they, they actually brought folks to full remission. And full remission is, you know, symptom-free, back to baseline and staying there without relapse. That's something we don't often see in mental health, you know, in psychiatry. Um, that's a, that means those, those results are pretty solid. It's pretty solid. You know, that's pretty awesome. What do you think about that? I mean, do you, do you do you think that is there something about this that maybe is full that we're not seeing that's maybe there's uh, something in the data that is making it better than it really is? So 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 maybe before we get too far into this, let me just kind of outline you know what the what the treatment looks like so people maybe have a better idea of that. Absolutely. So so yeah. it's all it's done with male female cotherapy teams, um, and that's kind of done based on you know, what was done in other studies and having the male and female co-therapists allows for different, you know, types of transference type reactions to, you know, to take place. So you're in the room and you're sitting on the couch and you have two therapists, a man and a woman. And then the treatment room, you know, you might be thinking a medical office, but it's something that's set up more like a, like a comfortable living room. 
So where there's, you know, couch or bed. Not the bed, not the bed. It could actually be a bed. Not the bed. It could be a bed. I've seen it. I've seen it too. This was fun. Yeah. Got to be uh, comfortable. I guess I was thinking our treatment room. Um, and so, so before they ever get MDMA, which they get, you know, up to three times, there's three 90 minute preparation sessions. So, so three 90 minute talk therapy sessions where we're getting to know the patient, kind of learning, you know, all about their life, what kind of how they've learned to cope with the trauma, coping skills, what's important to them, that kind of a thing and preparing them for what the medicine day looks like. So each of the MDMA session days are spaced about four weeks apart and they're eight hours long. Mm-hmm. And okay. yeah. So full, full course, full, full day of treatment. Full day of treatment. Yeah. And then three okay. integration sessions yeah. um, following that where we kind of, you know, help, help them continue to process what comes up in the session because there is a, a lot of material often comes up and, you know, the kind of the processing can continue to unfold even after the session. Followed by, so after three integration sessions, another MDMA session, three integration sessions, MDMA session, and then, then three final integration sessions. So it covers about, you know, three and a half months of treatment. Can you explain a little bit more about the, these integration sessions and what takes place there? Sure. So, so maybe I'll, I'll back up before I get to that one even. So into some of the, into some of the principles okay. of, the, of the therapy, because I think, you know, it was one thing that got me you know, really excited about it. Um, so they work with the, the principle that we all have what they call in the training manual, uh, an inner healing intelligence, which is basically like an inner wisdom that, you know, knows like what we need to achieve wholeness, like what direction we need to move. And that there's something about the combination of the medicine happening in the context of the psychotherapy that kind of allows this inner healing intelligence to unfold the material that needs to be unfolded and processed in a direction that's going to move them, you know, towards, towards healing and wholeness. And I think you mentioned this before we were recording, but what is it specifically about the MDMA that, that allows that to to happen? How does it take down your defenses and allow you to open up like this? Yeah. So, so it's like mechanism of action is a couple of things that, um, you know, causes presynaptic release of serotonin, norepinephrine, and dopamine. And then downstream, there are, um, you know, increases in oxytocin, which is like a hormone involved in parabonding in, in mammals, and an increase in cortisol, which is needed which is deficient in people with PTSD and seems to be needed in, you know, trauma processing. And so we know from fMRI studies that it causes a decrease in activity of the amygdala, which is the fear center in the brain. And this is something that in people with PTSD is, is hyperactive and, you know, is involved in a lot of the, you're the cause of, you know, a lot of like the symptoms that people feel. You know, you know, what's interesting about, about this, I mean, this just sounds so fascinating to me and I'm just sitting here listening and I'm, I'm kind of putting myself in the mind of like, you know, let's say a, 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 just a, a typical, typical one of our listeners, someone who's not a medical practitioner, you know, just a, just a lay person and maybe they've gotten together with their friends in the past, you know, maybe they hit up Coachella or something like that and, and had one of these types of psychedelic experiences, you know, um, shrooms and, and whatnot are very prevalent in, in some of these like festivals. And, and so you try this stuff and, 
MDMA, yeah. All the above, all the above. <laughs> and you try this stuff mm -hmm. and you're with your friends, you're bonding and you guys are trying it together. Why, why weren't they able to have a sustained, you know, let's say belief from depression after that Coachella experience, having done this that you're talking about, like what's different about this process from somebody that maybe uses these types of drugs on the regular, right? Off the street or goes to, you know, these like these festivals and kind of does this stuff recreationally. Like what makes this a different kind of experience? It's, it's gotta be the intention going into it, right? Yeah, so an important part of, you know, any type of psychedelic type therapy is what they call what's referred to as set and setting set being kind of like the mindset that you come in with and you know any your intentions that you're bringing you're bringing in with you and then the setting where you're doing it who you're doing it with so i think for you know you're so and you're you know when you're in these states you're pretty you're so wide open and so influenced you know on, on your surroundings that it has a really big you know, impact on the experience and yeah so, you know, and that can go any number of ways doing it recreationally like you were talking about. And for someone with a trauma history, they could potentially find themselves in a situation where really difficult materials coming up, you know, they're reliving their worst trauma mm -hmm. and they don't have anybody around who's supportive when they're going through this, you know, challenging experience. And, you know, for some people that can be, you know, itself traumatizing. So when you're working with, you know, and then working with therapists, we're trained you know, trained to work with these expanded states of consciousness or non-ordinary states of consciousness is what they're referred to. And, you know, a lot of what we do is help people kind of stay with the experience, stay with the processing so that the material can kind of continue to unfold. Right. And obviously that's not going to happen if you're you know, at a concert. That's where there's all this like external stimulation. Yeah. And obviously you guys are trained therapists. Um, but then on the other hand, like I was also just remember from residency, that these doses uh, are very controlled, right? Like they're, it's not like somebody's just like, you know, like taking a handful of <laughs> mushrooms or something like that, like Mike Tyson or, you know, it, it's, it's like there's uh, a, a, you know, a controlled measured dose strategy to this, just, just like you have with traditional antidepressants and so forth and so on, right? Right. Right, and it comes from a lab where you know that it's just MDMA and there's not other things added to it. There are a lot of you know studies where they've taken samples of um, you know of ecstasy. There may not even be any MDMA in it. Sometimes meth. And, you know, a lot of times there's methamphetamines added to it or cathinones or you know, yeah, kind of any number of things. Yeah, and when you get stuff off the street, you never. It's it's hard to know. You don't have like a you know a lab there to to be able to test the sample. To see what it so was. I guess get, getting back to these the, the MDMA studies, essentially, it does make these physiological changes in your brain. That I mean, that, Mike, you were talking. Yeah, that, that keep people within like the optimal. So in trauma therapy, they talked about being in the optimal window of arousal, where you know you're not too stimulated that you're you know like hypervigilant. Your you know sympathetic nervous system is going, and you're not shut down. You're kind of in this window where you're actually able to you know to, to process your mm -hmm. trauma where it's so easily you know it, and it can be kind of difficult for people with me to stay in that window yeah so there's like a there's a physiological mechanism action that makes sense to allow someone's defenses to go down so they can feel more vulnerable to allow these neg these traumatic experiences to come to the surface and then they work 
through those ideally with the trained therapists that are in the room. Yeah, and they can kind of be reprocessed from that traumatic, you know, implicit fragmented memory with these like unattached sensory elements, you know, and reprocessed and put into a different memory system. Why is PTSD the only, is that, is that the only thing that, that this I mean, cover, uh, uh, helps with or, is, or are there other things? Well, there's other studies. So we'll see what those show. Actually, so one, um, Charles Grove at uh, Harvard UCLA did a study. Dr. Grove was my attending in my uh, child and adolescent fellowship. Looking at MDMA-assisted therapy in, um, in, in autistic adults with social anxiety disorder, and it was shown to be effective there. Um, there's also studies, there's a study in England right now looking at MDMA for alcoholism. And I think also end of life um, anxiety is currently happening. God, these are some serious issues, man. See, these are serious problems that, you know, uh, are hard to, hard to solve. And anorexia and binge eating disorder also in, for, in one study. Get the hell out of here. Oh. So these are, these are honestly some of the most hardest things to treat. You're working with treatment-resistant PTSD, socialization and people with autism. Um, alcoholism, as everyone knows, is, is, is kind of running rampant and difficult to treat. And then yes. eating disorders, anorexia, which is the most, probably the most fatal um, yeah. mental illness that we face in psychiatry. Yeah. So, well, and that's just Amazing. MDMA. So tell <laughs> us a little bit more about uh, the other substances yeah, the that you, you work with. Yeah, so, um, yeah, so ketamine's, uh, yeah, in the class of, you know, dissociative anesthetics. Um, you know, some people started using it as a, as a psychotherapy adjunct in, in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. Good stuff. For, well, so, yeah, it was FDA approved in 1970 for general anesthesia. Um, and then... You know, I think like the, you know, kind of more, you know, academic medical community, um, you know, started publishing results in the early 2000s that it was effective for depression. I just think about that for a minute. General anesthetic. <laughs> this is something that's like, you know, people are, are used when they're like either post, you know, in op during an operation or post op when they're in intense pain um that's some serious stuff you know there's stuff that like literally just kind of like knocks you out yeah they have a um, fda approved nasal spray for it now as ketamine well and one common use of it is you know is in conscious sedation you know so for so it actually got became really popular in vietnam it was used with field medics you know people who were injured for like conscious sedation because it's really helpful with pain and it kind of you know helps people you know kind of get through transport in these difficult times yeah, man. And, and the, the fact that it, it's like an antidepressant is, is just fascinating to me. Yeah. And it's, you know, and it's, it's, you know, it's antidepressant effect is through a different mechanism than, you know, than the other antidepressants. So it's, uh, you know, works on through the glutamate system. So numbing a, 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 pain, a thing that, uh, that numbs pain, uh, physical pain is a great antidepressant. Yeah, I guess, I guess it makes sense. So tell us about the work you're doing with the ketamine. Yeah, so we are working at California Center for Psychedelic Therapy, um, where we've got you know Dr. Marta is another psychiatrist, and he was you know one of the founders, and then we've got some you know three therapists there as well. So you know, we kind of base our protocol, you know, based on you know kind of an accumulation of of the data. So we we start at the same you know the, the same dose as the. Uh, so the vast majority of the studies actually use IV dosing and did, you know, 
and it had been shown like twice a week is, you know, is an effective treatment. And so we do it, we do it twice a week for four weeks. So like a, a single dose, you know, there's benefit, but it may not last. It may only last a few days or something like that. And with the repeated dosing, people kind of have this, there's like a kindling effect where the duration of the effect lasts longer. And so the way the sessions work where we are is um, they're 90 minute sessions. The first 30 minutes you're with a psychiatrist and with the therapist. And the first 30 minutes is kind of the check-in, you know, see how things have been going, um, you know, integrating material from whatever else has happened in their life, including the last ketamine session. And then we, we work with uh, intramuscular dosing of, of the ketamine. So, you know, usually in the deltoid and something about, you know, get a shot. Yeah. Kind of similar to getting like a flu shot is, you know, is kind of what it feels like. And then people have uh, eye shades and headphones, you know, similarly to in the other psychedelic therapies. And you know, we have like a variety of playlists that, that we can play. And then it's an internal experience for, you know, for 45 minutes. Then after that, the therapist will kind of tap them on the shoulder and the rest of the session is free to talk about, you know, talk about whatever. Uh, okay. Um, 90 minute commitment's not bad. It's much better than, you know, all day, eight hours. All right. I, I think that's, that's doable. Yeah, that's kind of one of the nice things yeah, about it. And yeah. so 90 minutes and you want to do about twice a week, you said? Twice a week for four weeks. And then, um, then after that is, you know, we kind of figure out like a maintenance plan. So it may be people come in every like two, three weeks to kind of, you know, make sure that they, you know, maintain the improvements that they have. For sure. And, you know, kind of the end goal is for people to not need to, you know, not need to come in for, for ketamine therapy anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, and you. This is specifically usually for like treatment resistant depression. Yeah, typically treatment resistant depression. There's accumulating evidence for for PTSD, and we do it with PTSD as well. Yeah, and I right. love it. So you're getting some pretty good results out there uh, in in the, in the uh, LA community. LA community, it's tough out here. You know, these these people they they are very astute and well-educated in their wellness practices and their holistic practices, and they take that very seriously. So they're, you know, they're, they're it's at a, a high bar, a high standard out here. Yeah, and you know, and I'm, I guess, the most recent person to join the clinic there, and, you know, I think, you know, I think they've done a really good job and they get a lot of, a lot of word of mouth referrals. Nice. At this point in the process, does insurance cover that? No, no, so we can give people a super bill and they can submit it to their insurance company, but Unfortunately, an insurance company won't won't cover it, you know, directly. Well, but but they but they do provide some sort of reimbursement, I guess, for the services. Right? So some will. It's not you as know, it depends a, on your plan. It depends on your plan. It depends on some okay. factors. That it's it's definitely not something that's guaranteed. Unfortunately. Yeah, and we 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 won't get into too much of the details, but these are some of the drawbacks with kind of the system with regards to reimbursement, what, what insurance will pay for. But I think with all these studies coming out, proving safety and efficacy, um, I think down the line that insurance isn't, isn't going to have a choice when it comes to covering these treatments because they're, they're working. Yeah, for sure. Well, but at least it's a limited program, right? It's not like, you know, it's years and years. So you said it's like a three month kind of course. So and the expectation is that, you know, after some time, the person would, would become independent. Um, so that, that, you know, I think that's, that's nice. Is, is there, 
I mean, for you guys, um, do you guys have kind of like a ballpark for what a typical treatment course may be? Is there a range of options for clients? And so, so the one thing I would say is that, you know, although that's like, you know, ideal for people to eventually not need it, you know, for some, some people that can happen more quickly than others. And there are people, you know, we see a lot of people who come in who haven't had anything else work for them in their life and have, you know, like complex PTSD from childhood. And this is the first thing to work for them, but they need to come in, you know, they need to maybe need to maintain more often just kind of due to the nature of. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's true. I I see what you mean. Yeah. If someone's receiving maintenance treatment, um, obviously they're not like an antidepressant. You take it every day. Yeah. That would be maintenance treatment for like those ketamine sessions. How often would they come in if they're just receiving like maintenance? You know, it could be anywhere, you know, starting off from like one to four weeks. Okay. Depending. Yeah. So like every, every once a week for, or one, are you saying like, eventually. Ma- okay. Nice. Yeah. Eventually. So anywhere from once a month to once a week maintenance. Mm-hmm. All right. So not, not too far off to some of the things we already got going on in the field, but definitely yeah. a, a more, a more effective. Cause these are all individuals, like we said, that who have failed traditional treatments for the most part. Right. And most people can, you know, seem to fall into that like two to three week range to start, yeah. but it can, yeah, it can vary. Right. And there are people who are just like, you know, after that month, it's like, no, I'm good. Don't need to schedule a maintenance appointment. I'll let you know if I need to come back. Sometimes they will down the road, you know, sometimes they may not need to. So you mentioned, so MDMA, it sounds like is something where it, it opens up the individual, the patient, but then they work together with the therapists. Um, that are in the room um, to to kind of unpack traumas. Um, so it's almost like therapist guided. It sounds like ketamine is a little bit of a hybrid where you have a period of time where you're talking with the therapist um, and also a period of time where it's more internal. And tell us a little bit about psilocybin and how that how that works specifically and how that may differ from those two previous treatment modalities. Sure. You know, and the one thing I would say is that you mentioned like therapist guided and none of it's really like, we don't think of it in terms of like the therapist guiding them. It's more, we're kind of following their process okay. because the medicine is going to kind of work with whatever, you know, with their kind of, you know, the inner wisdom or inner healing intelligence. Would facilitation be a better term? I mean, I think that would be like, like more accurate. Yeah. But it's still, yeah, we're there to kind of, kind of help them through it. Not necessarily to like, open doors, although if they need help, you know, we're, we're, we're there to help, but it's really kind of following their, their inner process. I was just going to say for some people that know, don't know, like traditional psychodynamic therapy um, or psychoanalytic therapy, it's therapists aren't giving you advice or um, guiding you along necessarily. They're usually there to yeah, like poke and prod at different things. Um, but for the most part, like traditional therapy is usually something that it's always initiated from the, the patient or the individual right, that's receiving right, the therapy. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so it's kind of like, we're, yeah, we're not taking the stance of like the expert. We're just kind of there, you know, with, with them along the way as, you know, as we follow their process and which we don't know, you know, what it's going to be. We may have like some ideas, but we're kind of asked, hold those ideas lightly and let, you know, let, let things unfold. Well, I mean, it sounds like they, they, they could get, uh, I mean, it can go a lot of different directions. Um, you know what, what's going on inside someone's subconscious or you know unconscious mind. Uh, what are some 
success, <laughs> <Not> success. <laughs> what, no, what are some um, interesting stories you have from some of these therapy sessions? I mean, I, I have a feeling there's gotta be some creative things that come out of people's minds in these moments. So, you know, I guess, you know, thinking with ketamine, you know, things happen on like a really symbolic level, you know, people can encounter archetypes, you know, things happen, it happens kind of, you know, it's like deeper than like language, deeper than like rational thought. And it can really unfold in just, you know, kind of, you know, a, pr a pretty amazing way. Are you um, speaking in tongues? What do you, uh, it sounds like a spiritual experience. It can be. I would not speak, not speaking in tongues that I've seen, but um, no, I mean, I, th there's very much to all of these. The spiritual experience can be a really big part of it for people. I mean, when I think about going deeper than what's in the emotional realm, I think spiritual. Yeah. And I think that's what makes it powerful. Yeah. And, you know, there's like, you know, people that have been doing this research for a long time, you know, categorize these different types of experiences. You know, there's a term for them called transpersonal experiences. There's a type of experience called, you know, called a mystical experience that was actually, you know, developed by religious scholars and saw this as an experience that was kind of like the, um, you know, maybe the underpinnings of a lot of the different, you know, religions and so so with these like psilocybin studies and with a couple of the ketamine studies that they do these measures of um, mystical experience and it's you know something these um surveys that have been or questionnaires i should say that have been like factor analyzed and have gone through rigorous um you know rigorous examination but it's interesting that you bring that up because these have been shown in psilocybin studies to be independent predictive factors of improvement in people and in a couple of ketamine studies for substance use disorders. So that, so that can be a, that, that can be a big part of you know, what people find beneficial. Right. So psilocybin, sorry to get you off track. This stuff is just so interesting. You know, it's just fascinating. Um, but you were, you were uh, about to enlighten us on, um, you know, some, some of your vast knowledge there as well. Yeah, so psilocybin is a classic psychedelic, you know, similar similar to LSD. And Roland Griffiths, who was the you know, one of the people at Hopkins who kind of got psychedelic therapy happening again back in 1999, decided to go with psilocybin because it's you know less politically charged and it's just kind of a less of a you know history in, in the U.S. Mm, yes. Yeah. It's more. <laughs> I guess it's more practical too from a treatment standpoint because. LSD lasts what eight could eight, eight to ten hours versus psilocybin magic right. mushrooms last what four or five right yeah and yeah so right now psilocybin's under investigation um, there's two different companies that have patents one's going for major depressive disorder the other one treatment resistant major depression you know there's been studies that show benefit for uh, alcohol use disorder for tobacco use disorder and and, and, and end of life anxiety and depression related to you know, people with you know, terminal cancer diagnoses. Wow. Can we just think about this for a second? Because we know how much of a drain alcoholism is on this country with regards to how much money it costs and how much illness it causes, um, among other things. Um, and then tobacco, um, obviously, is, is, causes a lot of... I mean, we're not just talking about psychiatric stuff. We're talking about medical stuff, right? I mean, just... All kinds of physical health issues, cancers, and all kinds of stuff with the alcohol 
and tobacco, yeah. you know, sort of mm-hmm. combination. And then obviously, obviously depression, PTSD is also a huge drain on resources. If we're, so if we're zooming out a little bit, if we're talking about like psilocybin as a treatment or MDMA or ketamine, these are treatments where four weeks go by, four months go by and, and someone is in remission or no longer is struggling with alcoholism or cigarette addiction or depression. And for a lot of these patients, they don't have to go back for treatment. So this is it's groundbreaking. I mean, has a lot of pretty potential. outstanding, tremendous potential. Yeah. Um, but it, you know, it's like we, we, we've been saying though, um, there's a stigma, right? Because of the a time in history in which these substances were being used recreationally and, and just some of the, political issues, you know, that they kind of were associated with that at the time. Which is a shame because if, if you dig back deeper into the past, they uh, initially that they were used kind of more spiritually and, and medicinally, even before they became recreational. Well, yeah, there's evidence, you know, different psychedelics have been used for thousands of years in, in that context. Yeah. 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 And at the end of the day, what, what we have to really like, sort of pay respects to here is that you have a bunch of, uh, you know, trained high level professionals, you know, uh, that are bringing this to market and doing it the right way, right? Following the research, the science, the, the literature, um, staying up to date and delivering this in a therapeutic fashion, controlled fashion, um, and one that you know seems to be delivering serious results. So I think it's just a matter of time, right? Before everybody kind of recognizes the the need to to make some changes in how we regulate these things. Yeah, and I think they're you know yeah kind of going the route of um, you know kind of going the medical route of you know let's get the data. You know you can't argue with with the data, and let's you know bring these things to you know to use through through FDA approval. And, you know, and the early indications for, you know, psilocybin, um, actually even larger effect sizes, they're, you know, not as rigorous as studies, but, you know, two studies with treatment-resistant depression with effect sizes above, above 2.0. Wow. So, like, four times more effective than antidepressants. And then the, the end-of-life cancer anxiety studies, you know, all the different measures were, um, this is with the one-time dose, were about, you know, 0.8 to 1.2 for, you know, they do a lot of different measures, yeah. but in that kind of range, also a large effect size. This is, I mean, we're talking a lot about numbers, but we're, we're, we're psychiatrists. We all went to medical school. Like we, we base our practices based on evidence-based medicine. And, and this sounds like it, it's evidence-based medicine and yeah, it's exciting. Um, I mean, you know, our, our brand, you know, we're, we're about, we're about mental health in sports, but understanding that sports is just really um, a vehicle, right, for driving the message that we all need to be very serious about our mental health, and we all need to be very concerned about the different options that are that are out there, right? Because I I do think that modern conventional mental health care, which is very much driven by psychiatric medicines like antidepressants and traditional psychotherapies, you know, I, I think that they do have the limitations. I think the effect sizes that we've talked about demonstrates that. I think that, um, you know, there's the, really the evidence 
demonstrates that uh, there are a lot of people out there that are still suffering despite what is not to mention side, side effects. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Side effects. Yeah, that's a whole other. That's issue. a great point. Mike, tell us a little bit like what are there side effects to these medications? Like I know that you can't overdose on mushrooms. You can't. Well, I would say you can't. I mean, it would be, yeah. I mean, it's, it would, it would be difficult you know, to, have to eat your body yeah. weight. I don't know what the LD50 is, but yeah, it would be. <laughs> but so these are these are relatively safe medications obviously oh, so, so mdma is a little bit you know so mdma there is yeah they estimate the ld50 is between 10 to 20 milligrams per kilogram mm -hmm. um so it is one you know because of and ld50 oh yeah real quick ld50 for our listeners yeah is the dose that would educate them half it would be fatal for half the people to take mm. fatal dose 10 to 20 milligrams per kilogram. And so the dosing range um, for MDMA, you know, goes from, you know, a minimum of 80 in a session to like a maximum of 180. Got it. So, so it's, you know, it's in a pretty safe range there. And you're under the supervision of um, oftentimes medical doctors and therapists and trained therapists and, and mental health professionals. Yeah. And you, and you don't have, you know, cardiac risk factors. Exactly. And, 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 Everyone screened, obviously anyone with, let's talk about contraindications, maybe an individual with a psychotic disorder. I mean, Mike, you know this better than I do, but what type, this isn't a good treatment for every single individual, obviously. What type of people would, would not be a good candidate for these types of treatments? Yeah, so, so you know, let's say for psilocybin, you know, most, most of the studies, or everybody screens out, you know, you can't have a history of, you know, of psychosis related to, you know, bipolar one, you can't have a, you know, primary psychotic disorder. And a lot of the psilocybin studies they've even done, you know, they screen out, you, know, you can't have anybody with a primary relative, you know, with, with a psychotic disorder. Well, I mean, you're, you're, you're ruling in a whole lot of folk because, you know, most people who suffer from mental health issues don't have you know, psychotic disorders or bipolar disorders or, you know, those kind of harder core ones. Right, it's like one percent of the population with schizophrenia, another one percent with bipolar one, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So you know. No, and I was just gonna say, you know, with MDMA. So, you know, I, I I don't know. I have in front of me what's like publicly available for the exclusion criteria, so I'm not sure how, to what extent I can comment for that. Maybe we can, if I come back, and clear that one up. Good circle back. No worries. And I wanted Armin, you mentioned like I can tie this directly into athletes and sports because. These are being used in athletes. These are being used in a lot of retired athletes that are suffering not only with depression, anxiety, um, PTSD from maybe traumas. Results like this. I mean, come on. Mm -hmm. This you is know? kind of gaining mainstream. There's, you guys know Real Sports on HBO with Brian Gumbel. He did an episode or a segment on psychedelics. Uh, Daniel Carcillo, who's a two-time Stanley Cup champion with the Chicago Blackhawks, talks openly about his um, struggle with suicidal thoughts, depression, symptoms of concussion, post-concussive disorder, or post-concussive syndrome, and him doing, uh, I think, it, I believe it was psilocybin. Um, go check out that episode to know for sure. Essentially doing those treatments, cured him of his, his ailments, physical and mental, and other carry roads of safety for the New York Jets. I remember watching him play. He's also on that same episode. He talks about how it helped cure him of his physical and mental ailments from years and years of playing safety in the NFL. You can imagine playing safety, how many concussions he, he, he had. And there's several UFC fighters that are going through these 
um, different psychedelic experiences um, with guided professionals. We didn't mention like ayahuasca journeys and different things like that that, are, that go on in like South America, but um, these things have been are showing to be really extremely helpful for athletes as, as well. Well, yeah, because a lot of the conditions that, that Mike mentioned that they're, they're, they're studying using these treatments are conditions that we talk about all the time that you know athletes care a lot about. You know, conditions like um, you know pain-related conditions, uh, trauma-related conditions, eating disorders. Um, you know, those kind of things that you know addiction related disorders, these are definitely things that athletes care a lot about. So um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a perfect fit. And um, we're, this has been extremely enlightening. It's so fortunate. I know one interesting study, you know, maybe along those lines is um, Johns Hopkins is doing a study with um, you know, people with depression and early Alzheimer's. Wow. And so you think part of it, not only are they checking depression, but you know, what happens with you know cog you know cognition yeah we're seeing like connections between early alzheimer's and uh cte chronic tra traumatic encephalopathy a lot of uh, similarities there so i imagine in those types of individuals it can definitely be helpful yeah and i think some of that's yeah based off you know, i think there were data from rat studies that showed with psilocybin neurogenesis in the hippocampus so i think they're kind of hoping that that may extend yeah. so there's true science behind this there's actually you mentioned fmri studies which were functional brain imaging showing that there is kind of regeneration of certain pathways more activity in certain areas of the brain that are responsible for cognition um, higher learning executive functioning and, and things of that nature so and it's got a huge spiritual kind of vibe to it as well but that's not only what it is well um man Mike, God, this has been great. Uh, we're so thankful that you were able to, to come and join us today and talk about such a fascinating topic, one that we will not soon forget. Um, I think we've all been enlightened and uh, taking on a, on a bit of a journey here today. So thanks a lot. Absolutely. Thanks, Mike. Thank you guys for having me. This is fun. Right on. All right. Any, any last words for us, Mike? Anything you want to put out there? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, if anybody's in Los Angeles is interested in, you know, learning more about ketamine assisted therapy and think it might be something that, you know, that, you know, they'd be interested in for themselves, they can go to the clinic website, psychedelictherapyca.com. And anybody, you know, if you know somebody with PTSD or have it yourself and you're interested in, you know, clinical trial, and this, you know, goes for LA, but other cities as well, the website's mdmaptsd.org. And there's clinical trial sites in Los Angeles, San Francisco, New Orleans. I'm going to miss some of them. Boston, New York, uh, Boulder, Colorado, I believe Fort Collins. Nice. All over. And then, yeah, some in Canada as well, but I, can't, I forget the cities. Here we go. It's, it, it, this is a new frontier almost, or we're bringing back an old frontier and it, it's coming to light. And we're excited that... Um, we were able to have you on today, Mike, to share with our listeners um, all this exciting information that we haven't talked about at all here on this podcast before. And, and it's exciting, but I mean, we've mentioned stuff like the amygdala and stuff and uh, all these disorders, but this is a different treatment. This is a, a new, but yet old treatment and everyone should be excited. I no, man. Yeah, absolutely. It's on the horizon, right? 
um, coming to a uh, pharmacy near you. <laughs> Probably not, but um, no, it's, this, is, uh, this has been really fun. And um, yeah, great to see you again, Mike. With Mike Burke, we are going to end the stigma. Continue the conversation. All right. Thanks, Mike. Good seeing you guys. Thanks. Yeah. All right, buddy. See you soon. We'll be in touch.